Let's take our Bibles together and turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I will be reading all of chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And with our Bibles open, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. It is without error. It is breathed out by your own mouth. It is profitable for our training and reproof and rebuke and correction. Would you open us to your word that we might be changed by it and open your word to us that we might understand it. Speak to us this evening by your spirit and encourage our hearts, Lord, convict our sins and Make us more like your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. And very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another. And said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Sports fans, as many of you know, can be the most fickle of people. One minute their wardrobe is full of team apparel... Their car is decked out with team logos. Their weekends are booked with time put aside to worship their favorite sports gods. I mean sports teams. But in seasons of drought, they boo louder than their worst rivals do. Have you noticed this about professional sports? I'm never surprised, but I'm always alarmed at how quickly the home team crowd can turn on their own players when victory and success eludes them. This fair-weather fandom issue is what we have going on here in Job chapters 1 and 2. Job, as many of you know, is really a book about suffering under the sovereign hand of God. And we'll see that in these verses. But underneath the issue of suffering under the sovereign hand of God is a question. And it's a deeper question than why is there suffering. And the question that Job poses is, why should we trust and worship and serve God when we do suffer? It's not an issue of suffering. It's an issue of worshiping in suffering, especially if we never find out why. Most of us are satisfied to have a goal in mind. Many of us will undergo difficulty, strenuous difficulty, even uh, painful experiences with a goal in view. I think back to my own experience in boot camp. Nobody wants to spend 13 weeks in recruit training being mentally and physically abused by drill instructors. But there's a goal at the end of that, and it makes the suffering back here worth the finish line. But what about suffering where there's no 
reason given why, no end in view, no ultimate answer given to you in your suffering. We can't forget that Job, Job's wife, and Job's friends never got to read chapters 1 and 2. That's given to us, not to them. You can look at the final chapters of the book where God finally speaks to Job in chapters 38 to 42, and he never gives an answer either. Job never learns the reason for his suffering. At the end of the day, the only reason Job is given is this. I am God, and you are not. Trust that in my wisdom and power, I do what is right. That's it. Job is told, I am God. You are not. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I sent forth the rains and withheld them? Where were you when I designed the great sea creatures and even the ostrich? One of, just a little side note here, one of my favorite passages in Job is when God asked Job, have you considered the ostrich? The ostrich, now we all know, and God, uh, he says this very clearly, the ostrich will bury its head in the sand in order to avoid what it perceives as danger. And in running away from danger, it will step on its own eggs and crush them. And it has great giant wings and huge feathers and can't fly. In other words, and I mean this with all due respect, I'm not saying this to be silly, but with all due respect to God as creator of everything, the ostrich is one of the dumbest animals in creation. It really is. And Job, or God's point when he says to Job, have you thought about the ostrich, is this. If you can't see how the ostrich, which you think is the, the height of silliness, glorifies me and exemplifies my power in creation, then you have no business asking me why I do what I do. That's the answer that Job gets. The answer that Job gets is, I am God, you are not. Trust in my wisdom and power and know that I do what is right. Our shorter catechism puts it this way. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Everything that God does is holy. It is right and not wrong. It is wise and not foolish. It is powerful and not weak. God is never the victim, and he never acts out of weakness or responsiveness. He is never foolish. He never makes bad decisions or worse decisions. And he is holy. He never acts wickedly towards his creatures. And that's going to be our framework as we look at this text this morning. We just read that Job lost all his children, all his possessions, and all his health but his life. All this happens in a matter of moments in the beginning of Job chapters 1 and 2. And the, these realities in Job's life help us to answer the question this evening, why should we trust God, especially when things go bad for me? Why should we trust God when we suffer? Some of you here are in the midst of deep, dark trials. There are among us and among our congregation and among our circle of friends... People who are battling cancer, who suffer daily from mental anguish, who are in the midst of marital troubles, who have experienced losses, losses of loved ones, losses of jobs, losses of, of financial security, who are facing uncertainty about the future, going off to college or not knowing what to do next, or who simply just don't know what tomorrow might look like. Each of us 
if we live long enough, will experience this sort of suffering. D.A. Carson asked the question one time, or made the statement one time, if you haven't suffered greatly in life, you simply haven't lived long enough. Some of you older folks among us know this to be true. It's coming. And so what do we do when it shows up? How do we respond? How do we think about God? And why should we continue to worship and trust and serve him when things get bad for us? That's what Job is going to teach us. Job is put forth for us as a man who suffers in all of the worst ways. He epitomizes suffering, doesn't he? And he does so so that way we can't say no one has ever had it as bad as me. I know that God allows trials in the lives of all of his children, but this is beyond what I can accept as his fatherly care. This is the worst it's ever been. I'm experiencing the worst health issues that have ever been experienced. Here's Job sitting in a pile of ash, grieving the loss of every material possession he owns, including his ten children, their spouses, and likely his grandchildren. And he's scraping boils off his skin with a piece of pottery. He's put forth in such an extreme picture in order to remove from us any question that someone before us has not had it worse than us. God wants us to know that his servants suffer. On top of it all, Job is left with one voice who's supposed to be the voice of comfort and support for him. And her advice sounds like this. Curse God and kill yourself. That's what, he's get, that's what he's left with. We're given this to show that suffering is real and others have experienced great suffering and we're given a peek behind the curtain here in Job chapters 1 and 2 in order to help us lay hold of God and his promises by faith in the midst of our worst days. Because they're coming. And we need to be prepared for them. When we look behind the curtain here, we see something very important. We see that the only thing that's keeping Job alive is God himself. If Satan had had his way, he would have killed Job in the beginning. But God's the one that protects him. There's a reason for Job's worship in chapters 1 and 2. It's because God is the only one keeping Job alive and because God loves Job. Don't miss that. It's often hard to remember that part in the midst of reading a text like this as Job loses everything that he has except for his wife and his life to remember that it's done because God loves him and is honoring him. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. So what do we do? What do we do when suffering comes our way? First, we're reminded to trust God because he's holy and he never acts wickedly towards us. We trust God, we continue to worship and serve God because he's holy and he never acts wickedly towards us. Uh, these scenes in Job's one, Job 1 and 2 open uh, with Satan's perspective on Job. Satan believes that Job's piety is rooted in self-interest. Did you catch that in these texts? Satan says, is it for no reason that Job fears God? You've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him. You've increased him in the land. Stretch out your hand and he'll curse you to his face. Then in chapter 2, after he takes away all his material possessions, Satan says, eh, okay, skin for skin. You took his stuff, but it's his life that he cares the most about. All that a man has, he will give up for his own life. He'll curse you if you touch his body, if you take away his health and make him miserable. 
See, what Satan's saying is that Job's worship isn't true worship. He's not actually a righteous and upright man. Rather, he's a self-interested consumer who uses worship to get a blessing. We hear this accusation in our world, don't we? You Christians, all you do is use your religion as a crutch. You use it to ease your mental discomfort or your confusion. You, you lean on the community aspect of the church in order to help you get through tough times. But none of you really believe that stuff. None of you really worship this God. You just, it, it's pie-in-the-sky stuff that makes you feel better when things get bad. And it's the same, same thing that Satan says here about Job. He's not a true worshiper. He's a self-interested consumer. In other words, God's children don't really love him. They love themselves. You take away enough stuff, you take away the things that cause their devotion, and they'll curse God to his face. In Job's case, Satan accuses Job's worship of really being based on his material possessions, on the blessings that God had given him, the financial and physical blessings that he had experienced in this life. Those were the source of his love of God. Now, the reason that God allows Job to suffer so much is to take away Satan's accusation, right? Take away all those things, his health and his possessions, and when he continues to bless God, that's proof positive that Job's devotion is not based on God's blessing, but on his love for God in and of itself. But I wonder, and this is a question we might ask ourselves this evening, this evening what would Satan accuse you of basing your faith in God upon? If Satan were to audit your life and look at what gives you the most comfort and the most joy, the most happiness and most security, what would he point his finger at and say, aha, that's it. If it weren't for that thing, you'd have nothing to do with God. If it weren't for that thing in your life that God has given you, you'd curse God to his face. You'd want nothing to do with him. What is it that you get from God that inspires you to be a follower of his? One a way to diagnose this question would be to ask yourself, what do you love so much that if God took it away from you today, you would curse him for it? That's kind of a frightening question, isn't it? Think about it for a moment. What do you love so much that if God took it away from you, you'd curse him for it? Your health? Oh, I love praying for other people and seeing them recover from difficult diseases. I know some people have been suffering. Oh, well, oh boy, when other people suffer and they maintain their faith, that's such an encouragement to me. But the, as soon as I feel uncomfortable, I, am, I wither like a, like a flower in the August sun. Your health? What about your loved ones? What about the people that you love the most? I love worshiping God alongside of this person or with these people, but take them away from me, and I don't know if I could keep coming here. What about your reputation? If people found out who you really are when the doors are closed. For people in, in my position, for elders and pastors in the church, for missionaries like Art and Andrea, what about your ministry? We find our identity in it sometimes. Our satisfaction is found in what we do for the Lord even. 
For many of you, it's your job. It's a telling reality. It's a telling cultural commentary that the question that we ask other people when we meet them, the first question we ask is what? What do you do? What do you do for a living? We find our identity in our work. Many mothers find their identity in their home, in the quality and cleanliness of their home, in the behavior of their children. And many men find their identity in the work that they do. They're known as successful in whatever sphere they've uh, committed themselves to. And when you take that away, which is why retirement is hard for many people. It's why empty nest syndrome is difficult for many parents. Because they've lost their, the foundation of their identity. And when God takes those things away, how would you respond to him? How would you respond? I wonder what Satan would accuse you of basing your faith upon. What would cause you to curse God if he took it away from you? For clarification, cursing God does not necessarily mean that you begin to deny his existence or that you hate him or that you reject the offer of salvation in his son. It may simply be that you refuse to obey him because it would cost too much to do so. It may mean that you grind your teeth against his sovereignty because you simply don't like what he's giving you. Ultimately, what this means is you, cl- you care more about your own glory, your own comfort, your own peace, your own prosperity than you do about him and the glory that he deserves. This is what Satan believes will happen with Job. Let me take away his money, he'll curse you to your face. You put a hedge around him, give it to me, take away his stuff, and he'll curse you to your face. Now, that word curse here is an interesting word. It's the word barak, and it really means to bow the knee. We get the idea of it mean blessing, blessing, because you bow your knee in humble adoration of someone, a sovereign, right? And it's the idea, in fact, it's the same word that we find in verse 21. Look with me at verse um, 11 of chapter 1. Satan says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will barack you to your face. He will curse you to your face. In fact, back in verse 5, Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. And so he offers sacrifices to them. But what do we find happening in verse 21? Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed, Barak, be the name of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Job does exactly what Satan says he's going to do, except he does it with a right heart. There's so much irony in this passage. God kind of winks at Satan. What are you doing, Satan? Like, God doesn't know. Where you been? Satan says, I've been walking around the earth doing whatever I want. And he goes, huh. Do you notice Job? You can kind of picture God like winking at the audience, all the angels that are gathered there, all these people who are there in this heavenly scene. Do you see Job? Satan goes, yeah, I saw Job. I'll bet you if you let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. And God goes, all right, go ahead. And he comes back, and what happens? Exactly what God knew would happen. Exactly what Satan thought wouldn't happen. And he does it again. You'd think he'd learn God says to Satan, go, away, go ahead and take away his stuff, and he won't curse me. He'll bless me. Is that true for you? Is it true for you and me that our love for God is rooted in who he is and what he's done for us in his son, not what he gives us in material prosperity in this life? 
Is it his nature, his person, and his works that endear him to us? Is it the fact that he deserves our worship that we follow him in worship? Or is it because we think we get something out of it? Interesting to notice that God in his holy and righteous interaction with Job and Satan in this text never lashes out against Job in anger. He's not capricious towards Job. He doesn't give up his servant to some sort of uh, sick, twisted experiment in order to prove that God is right and Satan is wrong. Rather, God honors Job's faith in his suffering. You think about that. God honors Job's faith in his suffering. This might sound strange, but there's two reasons why we know this is true. First, what is this, this notion of suffering being a, a, a gift of God is repeated for us in the New Testament. I think I passed over this briefly this morning in the book of Philippians. Uh, if you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 1, we're only going to look at one verse. But Philippians chapter 1, in verse 29, we read this same idea that the suffering that God's children endure is an honor given to us by God for the sake of Christ. Now, that's totally upside down for the way that the world thinks about difficulty and pain. But it's not, is it? I can hear the voice of an unbeliever saying, that's just foolishness. What sort of God would cause you to suffer as an honor? What sort of God would cause you to experience difficulty in this life as a display of his love for you? And yet, how many non-believers do you know that put themselves through immense physical pain for the glory of having a body that looks like they want it to look? Or a reward that looks like they, or that uh, is what they want to have? How many uh, people are put forth as the, the most fit or the greatest person in their field, and they have to endure trials and tests to prove themselves to be so? It's not uncommon. But here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, listen to what it says. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That word granted there in verse 29 is the word graced. It has been graced to you to both believe to both believe in God and to suffer for the sake of his son. God honors his faithful children with the opportunity to suffer for the sake of his son. Why? Not because it's some sick, twisted uh, plot in a horror movie, but rather because we get to experience the suffering that our Savior experienced in this life, which draws us ever closer to him. There's another reason why we say that God is uh, honoring Job here in this text. Look at what he calls him in verse 8. Satan shows up in the throne room and God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 3, my servant. That word there is reserved for a few special people in Scripture. Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, is called a servant who is faithful alone in all my household. David is called the servant of God in multiple passages in the texts that speak about David. There's one other person who's called the servant of God. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Isaiah talks about him in Isaiah chapter 53. He's a servant of God. 
And what does he endure for the sake of God's glory and for the good of God's people? Great suffering. Great suffering. That's why we call him the suffering servant. He's Jesus Christ. God has no children without suffering. None. Not even his perfect innocent one. Job is being honored by being joined together categorically with people like Moses and Abraham and David and even Christ suffering for the sake of God's will. Now Job was blameless and upright in all the land, but he was no perfect, sinless man. There's only been one innocent man who suffered, and that's Jesus. And he suffered because you and I are not innocent, because we're not faithful, because we're not obedient and beloved children, but because we're disobedient, because we've sinned against God, and because someone deserves the sort of suffering that Job experiences here for our wickedness. And Jesus took that upon himself for our sake. He is our suffering servant. Job draws our attention to him in this text. And so we trust God in suffering because he's holy, because he never acts wickedly against us. That even when we experience the most difficult situations, God is not sinning against us in his treatment of us. Rather, he's showing his love for us and honoring us. But beyond that, we know that God is wise. God never makes decisions about our lives and what we experience that is not rooted in his wisdom and kindness towards us. God is wise, and he always gives and takes away according to his wisdom. The source of all of Job's blessing is God. Satan acknowledges this, doesn't he? In our text, uh, in verse one, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, he says, Haven't you put a hedge around Job and his house? Haven't you blessed the work of his hands? You've increased him in the land? Even Satan knows that all that Job has is from God. It's God who wisely distributes gifts to his children. Even the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We don't have time, but the whole book of Job is filled with language about God's creative power and about his daily involvement in the world, his wisdom in ordering all things according to the counsel of his will, and his power in sustaining and upholding them. The deer give birth because God is working. The rain falls and the sun gives light because God is kind. But when we suffer, we forget those things, don't we? We can easily curse God for taking away what he's given to us in the first place. One of the things we do as part of our morning liturgy here at the church is we offer offerings, don't we? We give back to God a portion of what he's given to us. And in doing so, we acknowledge that every penny that we have is a gift from God. Everything that we own is a gift from God. The Bible tells us that not a sparrow falls to the ground without his command. That he feeds all the animals of the field. The, the lions roar in vain if God doesn't feed them. How much more does he give good gifts to us as children? How well does he take care of us? And we remember that everything is from God, and in his wisdom he distributes according to our needs. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that he knows what you need even before you ask him. And in the midst of suffering, then, we acknowledge the fact that in God's wisdom, he takes away exactly what we need to have taken away as well. No amount of prosperity or apparent security will guard you from the sovereign plan of God. 
Job learned this. If anybody could have trusted in his material wealth or his health, it would have been a man like Job. And he loses it all in a moment because God is working and God is wise. I remember hearing about a bumper sticker uh, a number of, this is decades ago I remember hearing this. And it was something to the effect of eat healthy, exercise daily, and die anyway. Why? Because everything, every breath is from God. And you can work and you can fear and you can provide your own security and look out for yourself to the best of your ability. And at the end of the day, God's sovereignty means that he's in control. But God's wisdom means that he does everything perfectly. So we don't have to fear God in our suffering. We can continue to trust God in the midst of trials. We can continue to have faith in the midst of difficulties. Look at verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Again, Job says, and in fact, look back at verse 20 with me. This is just a fascinating commentary on the voice of faith in the midst of trial. Job does not deny the reality of his suffering, does he? We want, we want a Job who acts like there's nothing wrong. But he doesn't. He shaves his head and tears his clothes and finds himself in the pit of misery because of the actual suffering and loss that he experiences. But then what does he do? He worships because he knows by whose hand he's experiencing the suffering. Naked I came from my mother's womb. I had nothing. Everything came from God. I literally came into this world with nothing. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil also? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job gives us the voice of faith in the midst of trials. He acknowledges God's wise provision and God's total, holy, sovereign rule over all of his life. That's the sound of a voice of one who knows who God is. Job's wife, on the other hand, represents the voice of the world. A response to suffering and evil and disaster that declares there must not be a God, and if there is, he's not worth worshiping. Any God who would allow that to happen can't be a God worth worshiping. Job's wife sees trouble as a sign that cursing God is the best choice for Job. Who would want to be in relationship with a sort of God like that? But the problem is, Job's wife hasn't read chapters 1 and 2. And she's not aware that God directs Satan's attention to Job because of Job's faithfulness, not as a punishment for Job's sin. That God's honoring Job by calling him his servant, not punishing Job for some unknown uh, reason. God is not acting vindictively or capriciously toward Job, but rather wisely and uh, in, in his fatherly kindness towards Job. Job, unlike Adam, however, doesn't join himself with his wife in her allegiance to Satan's disposition. Rather, he displays a commitment to the sort of faithfulness that put Job in this position in the first place. Now, we talk about things like this because moments like this, and if you've experienced suffering, you know they arise in a moment, don't they? Great suffering can arise in a moment. It's, not, it's often true that you wake up one day and things in your life have changed. It tells us here in chapter 1 that there was a day 
when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking at the oldest brother's house. And one of his servants showed up. And while he was still talking, another one showed up. And while he was still talking, another one showed up. And while he was still talking, the last one showed up and said, everything you have and everyone you love is dead. It happened in a moment. In just a moment. And we're talking about this now, not because many of you are suffering, but because each of us will. And we have to prepare ourselves with answers to difficult questions so that way when trials come, we're able to lay hold of God in faith. That we're able to respond in the midst of suffering with continued trust, continued worship, continued reliance on God's goodness toward us. I told this story recently, and perhaps you've heard it uh, from me before. I have a friend named Bob. Uh, Bob is a a retired fire chief uh, from Boulder, Colorado. Bob is, uh, he will be 82 this summer. Uh, Brilliant, godly man, earnest, godly man. And uh, he is, uh, he has experienced a lot of suffering in his life uh, in his work as a firefighter. Uh, Great injuries that he's sustained and, and difficult experiences that he's had. And I use Bob as an example of what it means to prepare yourself for suffering by thinking about who God is now rather than later when you end up in suffering. This is the difference between Job and Job's wife. Okay. So Bob, as a fire chief, would get a call. There's a fire at such and such a location. You and the crew head over there. Now, here's what they didn't do. They didn't jump in the truck, drive to such and such an address, jump out of the truck, run into the blazing building, and then arrange all of their fire protective equipment on the ground, and one by one, put their pants on, put their shirt on, put their helmet on, put their oxygen on, put their mask on, and then equip themselves to be protected in the fire. Rather, what they did was they got the alarm, and at the firehouse, they put on all their personal protective equipment, then got in their truck, then drove to the fire, then ran into the building to save lives. See, they put on their protective equipment back here in the safety of the fire station, so that way when they get to the blazing building, they're ready to move in to, to danger, protected to the best of their ability for the job that they've been given to do. And the same is true, I think, about Gene can probably talk about this, I can talk about this, the same is true in combat. You wear your equipment even when there's no firefights going on, so that way when they do go on, you're already equipped for it to happen. And this is what we need to do as Christians who know that suffering is a part of the Christian life. We prepare ourselves now with the, with the spiritual protective equipment that we need to continue to walk in faithfulness, to continue to worship God when the difficult situations arise. Put on the armor of God now, in other words. That way, when the suffering arises, you're equipped to be faithful to God in the midst of it all. Lastly, what do we see in this passage that encourages us to continue trusting in God? Again, the question we're asking is, why should I trust in God when things get bad? The last thing we see is that God is powerful and rules with total sovereignty. Remember, providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God is holy, and he never acts wickedly towards us. God is wise, and he gives and takes according to his wisdom. And God is powerful. 
and is in total sovereignty over all things. God directs Satan in this text, doesn't he? He tells them both who to pay attention to and what he can and can't do. He limits the scope of Satan's power. He gives him permission. It's not abdication on God's part. He's the one that sets the terms for the engagement. He's the one that provides the parameters for the suffering. And he's the one that brings the whole mess to a halt at the end of the book. And in fact, he's the one that restores Job to twice the blessing that he had before. God is the primary actor because he's the sovereign ruler over all. And so we can trust him in the midst of suffering because our suffering is not evidence of him losing control of his universe. That's how it feels sometimes, isn't it? I've been crippled by a, root, by a bad toothache that needed a root canal. I can't imagine the suffering of Job. I can't imagine the suffering that some of you have experienced in this life. But it's the promise, the knowledge that God is sovereign and in control, that he's the one that made you, and he knows your frame that you are but dust, and he's the one that controls the outcome of your life. That he gives according to his wisdom, and none of it is ever wicked. It's always holy. It's always right. There is no dualism in this text. There is no, it's not God versus Satan. There's not a cosmic tug of war to see who's going to win Job's soul. We often think of things in the world like that, don't we? We think of the universe running like that. Satan pulls a little bit and he gets the ropes a little closer to his side. And then the God team pulls over on this side and the rope moves a little across the line. And one day, yeah, we're sure God's stronger. He's going to win. He's going to pull the rope all the way over and win the cosmic tug of war. But in the meantime, boy, it's a battle going on. No, it's not. Satan's on a leash. He's God's servant. And he does what he's told, and only what he's told, and no more. You see, here's the problem. We think Satan is far more like God than he is, when in fact he's far more like us. He's a created being. And the problem is, the other problem is, we think we're far more like God than we are when we're actually a lot more like Satan. How are we more like him than God? Three ways. Number one, his attitude towards God. He's so disrespectful. You don't walk into the king's throne room and act like you're in charge of his kingdom. What have you been doing, Satan? Doing whatever I want. Walking around on the earth. It's mine. Going to and fro. But that's the way that we walk into God's throne room, isn't it? Often. Total disrespect. Disregard for the God that created everything by speaking into existence. And we act like we're in charge and we've got him figured out. Total disrespect for the God that made everything and sovereignly ordains all things. Far more like Satan. What about his attitude towards himself? Oh, he is so proud. Oh, I've got you figured out, God. Job, you think he's great? You don't even know. I do. I walk around on the earth. It's mine. I go where I want. I do what I please. I say what I want to whomever I want. Give me, give me Job. I'll take care of him. I'll prove that you're wrong and I'm right. What pride, what arrogance that Satan displays. Is that any different than the attitude that most of us display from day to day? Spiritual pride, acting like we're the ones that are in charge, like we're the ones that call the shots, like we really know what's going on, and God should submit himself to our will. Finally, 
Satan's attitude towards Job, the great disdain he has toward Job for his prosperity and success. Job has been given great blessing by God, and what does Satan do? He hates it. He hates the fact that Job worships God, and he hates the fact that God loves Job. And he hates the fact that you and I love God and worship him, and the fact that God loves us. And we often respond the same way when we look around at people who are experiencing great blessing and prosperity in this life, don't we? We're jealous. What do they do to deserve deserve that? Why does she get a husband who treats her so well? Why does he have kids that always listen when he tells them what to do? Why does... Why do, why do they ha- live in a house that's that nice? I've been working for 40 years at the same job, and I've never lived in a house that nice. And we're just jealous of other people's blessings and success. We're far more like Satan than we care to admit. We're spiritually proud, we're jealous of other people's blessings, and we treat God with total disregard and disrespect. But don't miss the fact that Satan is far more like us than he is like God. He's a servant. He's a created being. And he can only do what he's told and no more. Don't miss that. God's total sovereignty over all things, even your suffering and even our enemy, is meant to encourage the Christian in the midst of great suffering that God has not lost control, but he is actively and completely in total control of your very circumstances now. Now, perhaps you're experiencing suffering at this moment. Health suffering, mental suffering, relational suffering, or whatever it might be. And you don't like the fact that God is totally sovereign and in control of it. The problem is not with God's sovereignty. It's always with our response to it. And so I want to encourage you this evening, as we bring this to a close, that Job's response to what God allows in his life is rooted in the fact that he knows that God is holy and that he never acts wickedly towards his children, that God is wise and he never takes away things that we really need, and God is powerful and he never acts in weakness in the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. Rather, he is a heavenly father who kindly and benevolently pours out blessings on us and cares for us in our deepest, darkest trials. It's the reason why Job is alive from chapters 1 all the way through 42. Ultimately, God does not defeat Satan through the faithfulness of Job. You notice in the book... In chapter 2, verse 7, Satan disappears. This is the last we hear from him. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with boils from his head to his toe. And that's the last we hear of him. He's gone from the book. And you can get to the end of the book of Job and think to yourself, well, Job was faithful. He maintained faithfulness. He didn't listen to the voice of his accusing uh, uh, counselors. He believed in God all the way to the end. He received the reward of blessing for his faithfulness. Job defeats Satan in the courtroom of God. That's not what happens. God does not defeat Satan through the faithfulness of Job, but through the faithfulness of another servant who suffers even greater torment for, in his innocence. What God spared Job, he poured out on his son for us. What's the one thing that God restricts Satan from here in chapter 2? 
Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. What does God not spare his son for our sake? His life. Isaiah 53, back to that passage we mentioned earlier about the suffering servant. It pleased the Lord to crush his own son, to cause him to suffer for the suffering that we deserve, that we might not suffer the judgment and wrath of God. Job is a picture of Christ for us. He's a reminder of what faithfulness in great suffering looks like. He's the sort of person who believes that God is holy and submits to his will, that believes that God is wise and worships his workings in the world, that believes that God is powerful and trusts him in the midst of difficulty. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of that in Scripture. He said, my very food is to do the will of my Father. He submits himself even to the point of death. He despised the suffering but endured it for the sake of the joy that was set before him, which is the salvation of his people. And so while we think about Job's suffering, and of course we're reminded to maintain faith in the midst of deep trials and dark trials, we ultimately don't look to Job, but we look to Christ. Christ is the one who suffered for our sake and who endured great suffering that we might not experience the wrath of God. This text begins with an accuser in heaven. Satan, the accuser, walks into the throne room of God with great pride, and he wags his finger in God's face. He's not there anymore. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells us that I saw Satan cast out of heaven like a bolt of lightning. There's no longer an accuser that stands before the throne telling God, hey, your servants, they only love you because you bless them. Rather than an accuser, there's now an advocate. And that advocate is Jesus the righteous. Don't listen to the voice of the accuser. We have a better voice that speaks a better word in heaven for us. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this word from Job this evening. Thank you that you have displayed your great holiness and wisdom and power in your dealings with all people. And thank you that we can know, even in the midst of trial, that you are good and that you do good. That we can continue to trust you when things get sideways in our lives. That we can believe that you have not abandoned us or lost control of your creation, but rather you are working all things for our good and for your glory. That we can believe that you are wise and you give and take accordingly. That you are holy and you never act wickedly towards us. And that you are sovereign and that we are in your control and under the care of your strong hand. Help us to believe that in times good and bad. Lord, would you bless the food that we're going to eat now as we conclude our time of worship, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.